0: Okay, Julie, I have a philosophical question for you. Oh no. Would you say that vinyl records are okay. resilient? I As a concept. As not a concept. Necessarily an individual record.
1: Alright, okay, So I was gonna say individual record, no. Because if there's a perturbation, a disturbance, if yes. I, you know, crack the record over my knee, it's gonna it's, fall into multiple toast. pieces and it's toast. Not resilient. The idea of a vinyl record. It's probably resilient, because they're still around, despite being, you know, not portable and et cetera,
0: et cetera. Right, right. But they're very physical, and they've been making a big comeback, right? Yes, absolutely. Very interesting. Okay. I'd I'd agree with this assessment. I was thinking about this the other day. I was at Barnes & Noble, and they have a big vinyl selection there now. Odd. caught, Caught me by surprise. It's actually quite impressive. Yeah. But I was like, wow, like... Ten years ago, wouldn't have seen any of this. Right, right. So it's just interesting how the oldest format for recording RDO is sure. now back in Back business. in vogue.
1: <laughs> Maybe there's a cyclical, uh, you know, we were talking about the, what were we talking about last time, the foxes and the bunnies. Yeah. Maybe there's something like that going on, where there's a big boom and then a bust of the population of vinyl records in the world.
0: Yeah, cyclical.
1: Cyclical. <laughs> nice. Well, welcome to... What the heck is resilience anyway, WHRA? I'm Julie. I'm Connor. And we are back with our second topic episode. What are we for talking sure. about this week, Connor?
0: Well, I'm so glad you asked. Oh, yes. We're talking about alternative stable states.
1: Maybe some regime shifts in there, too.
0: Maybe throw some regime shifts in there for good measure.
1: Yeah. This is a... I like this topic because it, to me it's straightforward. Resilience gets a little... It's very abstract. Abstract alternative stable states is we've got physical evidence makes sense We got some concrete examples i think this is a you know maybe it must be a brief episode maybe we'll talk about it forever but i think this makes sense i
0: think it makes sense too i think that it's a very good grounded concept to dip your toe into
1: right a good for an early resilience understanding so if last week's episode had you confused
0: Or scared off, then you're probably not listening to this podcast. Maybe you're not, but if you
1: are, congrats on coming back and trying again, and this should be a little more palatable. (laughs) Just to rehash who we are, I'm Julie. I'm a master's student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in uh, Natural Resource Sciences and Applied Ecology.
0: I'm Connor. I'm a PhD student, also at the School of Natural Resources, working on my PhD doing law and ecology.
1: Nice. So, the roadmap for this episode... I'm going to do a concept introduction, just give you some of the the vocab and their definitions, so we can talk about alternative stable states. Connor is going to give us the foundational paper, sort of like an old classic paper, maybe one of the early ones that mentions the idea, there sort of am. one of the you know kind of the 1973 paper we did last time, somewhere around that time, that era, that era of ecology. Uh, I'm going to give a modern paper, paper from 2017 that just sort of you know shows us where we're going, you know, maybe some future research interest, just sort of where the field's at now. And then we're both going to do our favorite section.
0: Resilience in the news. Resilience
1: in the news, where we see if we can find in popular press something that even either explicitly mentions alternative stable states or doesn't, but where we see it in our day-to-day lives or, you know, at least media intake. So, I guess I'll get started here with defining alternative stable states and regime shifts alternative stable states is basically just ecosystems nations civilizations whatever you have it change sure and um might be kind of a gradual change little by little incremental or sometimes there might be catastrophic massive changes that seem to happen all at once kind of out of nowhere and so, something that we talked about last time, I know a little bit, is the ball and cup model, if right. you remember this. Mm-hmm. Where if you have a ball, and that's the state of, we'll, t- we'll talk about ecosystems for now. That's the state of your ecosystem. That's, you know, the composition of trees and animals and plants and things that are going on right now.
0: All the species in the system. All the and
1: species, all, all the, of the.
0: Abiotic stuff, too. Yeah, rocks and soil. sand
1: and soil and all that good things. Um, the cup. In this analogy, is sort of the basin in which that ball sits. So, picture you have two cups sitting right next to each other. The ball's in one, down there at the bottom, not really going anywhere. You know, if you shake the cup a little bit, it's probably going to stay in the bottom. But if you give it, you know, if you really whack that cup on the side, it might go up the edge and fall down into the cup that's right over on the other side. And that represents an uh, ecosystem changing from one state. One stable state, the bottom of that cup, over a threshold, or a tipping point, that's sort of the lip of the two cups, and falling into another, going down to back to the bottom of a cup, which represents a different state. Sure. So that's it in a nutshell, but what does that mean? Here's an example that people talk about with climate change sometimes. Uh, desertification. So you might have a region that's been, you know, a... Uh, Grassland with lots of grasses in it, or maybe even something, you know, with some larger woody vegetation, that sort of thing. And something happens that changes the climate regime, you know, more CO2 in the atmosphere, what have you. Gets warmer, hotter, drier. Um, You might have some human mediated effects where people disturb the plant communities there and that sort of destabilizes the soil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have whatever vegetation community that there was there Transition into a desert. It's now just a bunch of sand. Those are two okay. alternative states. Right. Vegetated state and a sand, deserted state.
0: So they won't exist at the same time because it's the same place. Yes, exactly. But that particular place right. could be either one of those things.
1: Yep, can be either one. Let me just give a few definitions and I'll give another example. Like we said, alternative stable states is just two or more. They don't have to be just two possible configurations of an ecosystem, possible, you know, you're probably going to look at it in probably going to look a certain way. It's a forest or it's a grassland or it's a desert or it's, you know, what have you. Um, threshold, like we said, is that tipping point between cups regime shift is the actual action of that ball switching cups, the state of the system changing. And then you have something called hysteresis, which I wanted to define because it gets to what you were saying a little bit where, the same system can be in two configurations. Oh, right. Right. I'm going to give another example now. This is one people talk about a lot. It's kind of in the literature a lot. Kind of got some of this work with alternative stable states going with um, Carpenter and, and, you know, those sort of authors if you're familiar with the literature. Shallow lakes. So you have a Uh pond or a lake, and it's clear. you got some vegetation at the bottom. You you can look into it. It's, you know, kind of what you think of as a lake. You see some fish swimming, it's
0: you see know, at the bottom maybe it's not even. perfectly
1: clear, but you know, yeah. it's blue water, whatever. Yeah. Um, but then, what's frequently happens, especially here in the Great Plains, is nutrient runoff from fertilizer from nearby farms. So that means that you're this um, through rain, through you know topography, this nice clear lake might get a lot of inputs of fertilizer, a lot of you know nitrogen, phosphorus, what have you, whatever yeah, sure. all that, yeah, all that yeah. typical fertilizer stuff. Um, and that's gonna, the, your lake is gonna get more and more and more of this input, and it might for a while look like pretty normal clear lake, and then okay. all of a sudden, you're gonna have this shift, this regime shift, this ball moving from the cup of the clear lake, being pushed over that tip and into the cup of the muddy, what we called eutrophed, eutrophication lake. So there's some tipping point where. Shallow lakes, you know, it's probably based on, you know, amount of water and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure,
0: a lot of variables. A lot of
1: variables. It hits a limit and changes kind of all at once. So kind of striking to see. And then where hysteresis comes into play, is that's this idea that once a shift like this occurs, even when you take those nutrients back out of the lake, you know, you, you know, you figure out a way to extract a bunch of the nitrogen, a bunch of the phosphorus, you know, you Put the right species in to remediate it or you know you do this that and the other even if you get it back to pre tipping point right levels of nutrients it might still stay in that eutrophication state you have to remove more of those extra nutrients than were even put in to cause that shift for you to get back to a clear mm. state so that hysteresis it's, it's kind of an idea of like you have to put more effort into changing a system back from a state transition, then you did actually get it to do that first right. state transition. And that and the result of that is a lake at the same nutrient um, concentration could either be in the clear state or in the cloudy eutrophic state. Mm. Because think about it. Clear state, you know what? I, I, we're just going to make up numbers here for a second. We're going to pretend it's <laughs> one nutrient. We're going to pretend there's no units on this number and all that sort of thing. It has okay. 50 of a nutrient. You put in 50 of a nutrient and that makes it shift to... Um, this other state But then you take out 50 of the nutrient from the eutrophed one But mm-hmm. it still doesn't change back to that clear But yet you're still at that starting Concentration of the nutrient So right, that means right. for that same environmental condition It can be in two different states It's kind of that History matters there And it's, you know, legacy effects And blah 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 blah, blah. Right. But that's sort of a little bit of the I- basic ideas Sure Does that make sense?
0: I think so, okay. and there's a it makes uh, some intuitive sense, too, to a right. degree, right? As a, a stable state, presumably, is going to have some self-reinforcing some resilience. characteristics, right? Yeah, like some
1: exactly. resilience. It can handle some perturbations. That clear lake, you put quite a bit of, you know, runoff and fertilizer and nutrients into that before it shifted. Right. This new state that I put in, you know, it's still a ball at the bottom of a cup. You still have to push it, you know, hit it and get it back over that lip. It might take some doing. You
0: might have right. to really. Might be a steeper lip.
1: Might be a steeper lip. It might. <laughs> you might have fundamentally changed something in the system, and you know we can get into positive and negative feedbacks and all that. But this is just the intro concept, so. Right. 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 You know, there's plenty to read about. Don't. Let's not get bogged down in the weeds. It's not
0: overwhelm the viewers. Not
1: overwhelm the the viewers of this podcast. Um, would you say there's any other core concepts that? The listeners should know before we move on, Connor.
0: <laughs> I just realized I said viewers, and this is an That's why, I, yeah, I thought it was funny.
1: <laughs> I ran with it. I thought it was good.
0: Uh, no, I think that all sounds real good.
1: All right. Oh, and shameless plug while we're at it. The shameless. Shameless. The organization that Connor and I work with here at uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, the Council for Resilience Education, which is a student-led... Uh, education material creation group trying to teach people about resilience, yeah, which is why we're making like this podcast.
0: Science communication group.
1: Science communication group. We have published a module online about alternative stable states and regime shifts. That's so right. if listening to my voice or listening in general is not your jam, and none of that made sense, all of it is online. If you Google Plant and Soil Science eLibrary, alternative stable states and regime shifts. There's a whole little module should take ten minutes to read through. Shameless plug for our other
0: materials. (laughs) Uh,
1: All right. What's your foundational paper, Connor? How far back are we going?
0: We are going pretty far back. Okay. We're going back to the heady days of 1977.
1: Whoa. Only four years after Holling's inaugural Um, paper.
0: Only four years. So. Pretty close to each other. And yeah, in fact, Halling gets referenced a couple of times okay. in this that, paper. Okay, that
1: 1973
0: paper, same paper? Uh, different paper, same year. Okay, very cool. Yes. And, I mean, 1977, Star Wars came out, oh, so wow. I consider that a pretty auspicious year. <laughs> <laughs> a it's lot like, of good things happening it's in It's high in, in your esteem. Yeah, yeah. So, this foundational paper is called Thresholds and Breakpoints in Ecosystems with a Multiplicity of Stable States. Okay. Say that ten times fast. No. (laughs) This is a paper written by Robert May, again, back in 1977. And the topic of the paper is largely about... Um, reviewing the work that had been done at the time in wow. the area of alternative states
1: early review paper
0: yeah okay. so he was covering all of the work that was going on in especially the mathematical mol- modeling area working on what does an alternative state look like yeah. what is an alternative state that sort of a thing
1: right? yeah i mean this is still probably in that ear when a lot of people still have that we talked to this in the last episode that static um succession of things right
0: so So this
1: is a little revolutionary
0: yeah the idea that a forest was always a forest isn't necessarily true if you tweak the inputs to a system it might turn into a grassland or a desert right uh so the the research at the time was largely involved with like one or two species Mm -hmm. and dr may points that out as you get higher than that you start getting to really complex ecosystems with a lot of relationships between you know all these different plants and animals plus all the abiotic non-living stuff right so the water and soil and everything there's the
1: ecosystems are unlimited levels of
0: complexity. So you can... incredibly complex. Yeah. And so as a result, there was a really hard time matching mathematical models with observations in real world ecosystems. Absolutely. So he points it out and says, so at, at this stage, that's just not ready. What we are starting to see though, is some linkages between real world observations okay. and these simpler mathematical models involving like one or two species. Not a, not a whole lot. Just enough where you can have some relationships and start looking at those, but not so complex that kind of throw up your hands and say, well, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he reviews a number of different um, papers, and more specifically the experiments that were being done in these papers. But uh, he has three, like, really overarching topics slash experiments that he Hmm. looks at. So one is grazing ecosystems, one is insect pests, and one is human-host parasite relationships. That's
1: neat, I haven't heard that. I've heard the other two in in the literature about alternative stable states and spruce budworm and whatnot. I assume that might be the pest one, but I haven't heard the human-host parasite
0: example. Yeah, right? I thought that was pretty broad coverage. Yeah, very. Comes out of uh, left field a little bit. I thought that one was most interesting, but we're going to get to that one last. (laughs) So the first major example is grazing ecosystems. So this one specifically looks at um, herbivores, namely cattle in particular, of course, although something a large animal like bison would also qualify, right? right? Uh, Dealing with how much are they grazing and how dense of... A herd of cattle or bison, are we dealing with that sort of thing? So, in this example, pretty simple, right? There's just herbivores and vegetation. Right. Two things, sure. and that's it. And mm-hmm. you aren't even in accounting for all of the different species involved in, you know, vegetation. A grass something. is a grass. In this a, example, grass is yeah. a grass is a grass. Which, uh, yeah. don't tell Catherine I said that. Yeah, right, don't then. tell
1: anyone no, at this institution. We'd have some grass ID experts <laughs> come after us.
0: But for simplicity's sake, that's what we're working with here. So, The observation in this instance is that uh, tweaking a number of different variables can lead to different scenarios, which in turn ultimately lead to different stable states on a potential grassland area. So, for example, by tweaking uh, the growth rate of the vegetation, so changing that up, or changing how much uh, the cattle or the bison will consume, or changing how dense those herds are, uh, all of those can result in very different but stable states.
1: Okay. What's an example of one of these states?
0: The paper itself doesn't get into that because okay. it's dealing specifically with the mathematical modeling okay. aspect. Gotcha. So there's a lot of equations that I'm not going to describe here. Just, you know, you're welcome to look up the paper, but sure. I'm not going to describe to you the equation. That That'd would be confusing. That would all of
1: our limited viewership.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but think, for example, of a... Very high productivity, what we would think of as good forage quality grassland okay. versus a very barren grassland where we, we would have poor productivity. You wouldn't get a lot of weight by stacking your stocking your cattle on that piece of sure. property. So it, it really has to relate to what we would consider good forage quality versus bad forage quality. Okay. So try and visualize it in that right.
1: context. Right, and back with that not quite the desertification example but if you had cattle graze all of the plants off the of land you might even destabilize the soil you know what i mean like you could even yeah, permanently so permanently quote unquote you could ruin a space like that for grazing for quite some time shift it into that
0: state sure you'd have to put some work into restoring a grassland right right And so, uh, like I mentioned earlier, May provides a series of equations, you're welcome to look at the paper for yourself and see that, uh, that demonstrate how changing those different values allow us to observe what the thresholds are for those different stable states. For example, the the high productivity, good quality grassland, low productivity, patchy, Mm
1: -hmm. low
0: quality grassland. And then we can see what he calls a breakpoint. Um, in modern lingo, lingo, we would more identify this as a regime shift.
1: Sure, a tipping point, maybe.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, between one self-reinforcing stable state and a second separate self-reinforcing stable state. So, uh, Figure 3 in particular in the paper does a really good job visually of showing this, so if people are interested in looking that up, I recommend, I recommend that. It'll show you the self-reinforcing nature of uh, past that breakpoint one type of grassland will Mm -hmm. reinforce that state. And then the same thing if you're below the threshold. Right. So it really depends on if that break point is met. uh, Tipping point is met. So the second major example that May uses is insect pests. And you mentioned earlier spruce budworm. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's an example he gets into. Uh, He talks quite a bit about that. He starts first, though, with a general overview of what... An insect pest might look like, and this is a little more complicated than our grazing example because we have an additional factor in the equation. So we have our insect pests, we also have the vegetation that they consume, and then we also have insect predators because there's something unlike cattle. Usually, we have something right. Right, nothing's really coming for
1: the cattle. Too much.
0: Yeah, unless there's wolves or yeah, bears. Yeah, real or... wolves. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh unlikely yes unlikely so in this instance we have to take into account some other special complications with insect, pe- insect pests too like you know different t- kinds of insects have different uh, population cycles so um, some of them are more of a annual type insect others are more of a, what you might think of as seasonal mm-hmm. or they have a certain life cycle phase where uh, there's a lot of them every other year, sure. So they have to factor all of those into the calculations, right, which makes it more complicated in trying to identify that threshold more difficult, right? Uh, but in the final analysis, you know there's there's still two alternative stable states for a pest population in a in a particular area. And where that system winds up is is heavily, although it's not exclusively, influenced by how important a role the predators are in the system. So if uh, there's a lot of predators of our insect pest, Mm -hmm. uh, then the pest population is being controlled by the predators. But if there's few or no predators of this particular pest, then the Population of the pests is limited by the resources available. So, I see. This feels how much like our
1: bunny fox. It really
0: is. It uh, really is.
1: Grass example. Was it bunny and bunnies? Bunnies and foxes? Was that what I was
0: yeah. going on about what last you referenced? time? Yeah, earlier. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very similar. Okay. Um, they've thrown in a few more complicated factors sure, into absolutely. the dynamic, but the principle is the same. Right. right. So the consequence is that there's a middle ground where you have a system that, depending on the disturbance, could fall into either one of these stable states, because the ball's pushed up next uh, next to that threshold. It's
1: nearing that tipping point. It's going up exactly. the wall of the cup, but it's not quite...
0: Hasn't quite fallen, fallen sure. over.
1: But it's being perturbed. It's being disturbed.
0: Exactly. So when this middle ground, which isn't very resilient, obviously, right. because some little disturbance gonna push it one way or another uh, if that changes so if there's a change in the number of predators there's a change in the number of pests the carrying capacity of the system how much stuff is available uh, changes by a certain amount you could potentially have a pest outbreak right where uh, there's just a large number of pests that explodes for a little while and you see them everywhere yeah and then that pest population crashes because they've eaten all the resources Going back to that rabbit example, right? You had proliferation of rabbits, and then there's none of them. Yep. Um, And some very happy foxes. And some very happy foxes. So if you look at this mill ground, or really these mill ground systems over time, a very long time, you'll see long intervals where there's, you know, a few pests, but not a whole lot. And then there's this huge outbreak where the population explodes, and then they eat everything in sight, the population crashes again, and... The cycle begins anew. Sure.
1: So So each one of these stages, this, you know, everything's, you know, all the vegetables are eaten, vegetables, plants are eaten. (laughs) Good Lord. Could be vegetables. Could be vegetables. Could be, here, someone's farm is decimated. Um, All these different sort of situations where lots of plants, but not a lot of pests, but, you know, this sort of, all of those represent different alternative stable states.
0: Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And then the last big example that Dr. May talks about is human-host parasite systems, mm-hmm. which I thought was super interesting. Um, so he observes that thresholds and breakpoints, what he calls breakpoints, uh, exist in the transmission of infections. So this is especially true if there's an intermediate, um, intermediate what we would call a vector, right? Okay. Uh, like a mosquito, for example, or... Ticks. Ticks. Pick, you know, your small, yeah, little Yeah, something carrying something bites the human,
1: gives the human the disease, or the parasite, perhaps.
0: Exactly. So the author uses the spread of malaria as an example of this. So picture in your mind, you've got this one little um, mosquito infected with malaria, and you transport that little mosquito from its own ecosystem to a brand new ecosystem that has people and it has mosquitoes, but it doesn't have any malaria. Okay. Right. So it's this one lone mosquito. <laughs> if one malaria-infected mosquito is introduced to the community, there's a possibility, right, sure. that uh, that mosquito can bite a person mm-hmm. and infect the person, right? And that's you know a probability that you can usually, with enough data, calculate. Right. Yeah. Uh, And then, in turn, infected people can be bitten by uninfected mosquitoes, right? And and again, there's a calculable possibility that the mosquito could become infected with malaria and therefore become a vector, right? Absolutely. So, the crucial question then is can the original malaria-infected mosquito, on average, produce more than one subsequent infectious mosquito?
1: Yeah. I. Uh, long ago I took some public health classes and there's I, I, I the terms of escaping now but there is diseases have like average number of people that they infect from that so sure. you anyway, know a very virulent disease it might be that for every one person who gets it they on average infect eight people or something like this but sure. others could be less than one could just be one something like that so it's it's The the terms are are escaping me, but maybe some public health-oriented listener will write, shoot us an email. Sure. Yeah.
0: Give us an update. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that is the crucial question. And so if the answer is yes, and the infected mosquito produces more than one Mm -hmm. additional uh, infectious mosquito in its little lifetime, (laughs) Uh, then the system is immediately pushed over the threshold. You're going to create more and more infected mosquitoes, Uh, which are going to infect other people, which will then infect more mosquitoes. So then you have a stable malaria-infected mosquito people community, right? Right, yeah. So eventually the the populations of the two will stabilize, Mm -hmm. um, but malaria is now an element of that system.
1: Right, quote-unquote endemic,
0: maybe. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. On the other hand, if that original malaria infected mosquito can't produce more than that one subsequent infected mosquito, then the pressure of the current sablesate uh, that's you know, currently devoid of malaria is going to eliminate the introduced mm-hmm. disease. Essentially, you are below the threshold. Hmm. You push the ball up, but you can't quite get there so the ball is going to roll back down there's Neat. going okay. to be no infection of the community
1: right? yeah and so the two stable states are sort of con you know present constant malaria in the community or no present constant malaria in the community i mean maybe you get one infection every once in a while when that one lone mosquito jumps over and infects one person but right not doesn't take hold it's not a new state
0: exactly interesting and obviously this is a more theoretical model a a real world example would be much more complicated but i think that it's a very powerful and evocative example of teleporting that one mosquito right and if if essentially you're exactly right and it's almost binary on or off you're Mm -hmm. either infected or you're not infected Mm -hmm. and the system the existing system is going to ensure that it continues to remain that uninfected system if um the mosquitoes unable to breach that threshold right. and put push the system into the new malaria-induced system.
1: Very cool. I mean, it, that's a a very relevant uh, exa- you know example at this point in time. What with yeah. coronavirus and all that and be.
0: Yeah, I didn't think about that at the I time know. that I was picking this paper out. But you're absolutely right.
1: Well, but. and now I'm thinking that should have been one of our news articles for
0: later. <laughs> 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 uh, can't catch them all. Can't catch them all. So the implications, though, are, and there are implications for public health, right, at least in theory, mm-hmm. uh, if you can identify the threshold and determine what that break point or that tipping point is, then you could potentially use that information to manage for the disease. So malaria is somewhat special because, you know, this simple system that we've set up, it's either on or off. Okay. So uh, it really wouldn't work in this potential context. But with other diseases, you have a middle ground. So going back to the insect pest one we were mm-hmm. discussing, there's that middle ground where it could potentially be pushed one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of sitting on top of that threshold. If you know the threshold and you can determine what the tipping point, the break point is, uh, that tips the ball over into the alternative state, then you can potentially keep the the parasite load uh, just low enough that it doesn't hit that tipping point.
1: And you don't have to expend enough resources to eradicate it. Exactly. Or like you
0: don't have to eliminate it entirely. Awesome. You just have to keep it below a certain breaking point. Right. So May theorizes that at that point, the pressure of the non-infectious stable state will eliminate the infection on its own. You know, that's, I think that's some powerful public health uh, potentially, I guess I should say, potentially powerful Public health implications. Now, whether any experiments have been done since this was proposed, you know, way back in 1977?
1: Way back when? I
0: have not done a thorough enough review of the literature to know. Absolutely. But I do think it's an interesting idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and what you were saying there with the implications for public health, that's kind of also the implications for why we want people to know about alternative stable states, right? Oh, yeah. So, for sure. the more you can identify and know where these tipping points are in any system, ecosystems, public health, you know, extrapolate it out to anything, really. The more you can use your resources wisely, to dictate where you want your system to be.
0: Absolutely. Don't
1: have to doesn't have to be all or nothing, and you don't have to expend all your resources. And you have the sort of local knowledge that you know promotes good management.
0: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So in the end, um, those are kind of his three big examples. He goes into a little bit of others, but not to the extent. With these three kind of big overarching ones, right? Um, and again, you know, these are some very interesting theories and some potential interesting co- applications, but there is kind of a key weakness in this paper, which the author does acknowledge pretty much straight up. Uh, the examples are largely theoretical and uh, based around the relationships among, you know, one or two, maybe three species right. at most, right? Which we know ecosystems super complex. There's a whole bunch of Absolutely. thousands, potentially, of interacting species. So there's definitely some limitations. And as of 1977, at any rate, uh, the complexity of ecosystems really prevented any sort of practical application uh, using alternative stable state theory. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> May notes this problem in his concluding paragraph, and I thought it was very, I don't want to say whimsical, but... <laughs> He had some very uh, wonderful words to add to it. These manifold complications can lead lead one to take a gloomy view of the possibility of making predictions about multi-species systems. The one kindly light amidst this encircling gloom is that many complex communities are, arguably, made up of mainly loosely coupled lower order systems, to which the simple models reviewed here are pertinent. I Hello. think he's overly optimistic. I think he underestimates how complex lower order systems are and yeah. especially the interactions between a lower order system interaction might be simple, but right. they interact with each other and that will be complex. Yeah, and
1: there's that whole uh, um, thing in complex systems where the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Exactly. Once you
0: get lower order Once you get into complexity theory, it kinda throws. Complexity that theory out is a the whole window. other
1: thing that we might go into one day, but yeah, but then there's also people talk about with modeling kind of rule of hand or, sure. keep you know, try to find the key variables that direct a system and model based off those. So he's got right. some point. I think that that still holds up in sort of modern ecosystem modeling.
0: Sure. Well, certainly people kind of operate under that assumption with some right. studies. absolutely. If nothing else, I appreciate his optimism.
1: I love so. the old... Um, <laughs>
0: Flower, flowery, flowery writing yeah. of, of
1: old scientific <laughs> literature just <laughs> makes me wish that i still we could write this way still <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i did appreciate that good. so yeah overall a good paper yeah with, seems like a i like the, the
1: parasite aspect a lot
0: i thought that was definitely the most interesting aspect of it
1: yeah absolutely um, so my paper, the modern yes. paper. So before I go into this, I do want to say if people want to know more, you know, I thought about doing one of these papers. So if people want to know more about the lake eutrophication, alternative stable states. Oh, that's yeah. where a lot of the literature is. Look up some of uh, Steve Carpenter's work. You'll oh, find yeah. some great papers there. Um, I believe he's got a Wikipedia page. There's some, it's you know, <laughs> there's some good resources there. But I just want to talk about this paper in brief. It's called translating regime shifts in shallow lakes into changes in ecosystems, functions, and services. So still about, you know, this sort of lake eutrophication idea. But the whole point of this paper is... Oh, it's by Hilt et al., 2017, in bioscience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the whole point of this paper is saying, you know, everyone has sort of studied shallow lakes and ponds and eutrophication as an example of alternative stable states, sure. like I talked about at the beginning. Their point is that very few people have looked into specifically how these regime shifts translate into ecosystem service changes.
0: Oh, yeah, Yeah, so
1: their hypothesis was that the majority of these studies have focused on factors stabilizing the regimes, drivers of shifts, or methods to predict, prevent, or reverse the shifts. Mm. So those people are looking at, how do we know? Where are those tipping points? Where are the boundaries? What's the other shift, you know, the other state? How do I get it back? It's a lot of that kind of... mechanistic
0: or something like that. Yeah, pure ecology, physical science of uh, approach.
1: Exactly. And so they um, found this to be true, actually. They said, as we hypothesize, most of these studies focus on the detection of regime shifts. Right, And they made the point that that's all well and good. That's great. That's, you know, a lot of where this field started. That's a lot of what we have to do. And that's a lot of how you get management implications. Like we were talking about, if you know you want to keep it below a certain tipping point, but you don't have to, you know, the example of the parasite, you don't have to eradicate the species. <laughs>
0: right. yeah.
1: Great management implications and information. They made the point that shallow lakes provide ecosystem services, including habitat for you know local species. Um, they have you know carbon processing and all the sort of nutrient functions that come with that. There's aesthetic ecosystem services that come yeah. from clear water lakes, uh, drinking water supply. You know, there's a lot of stuff like swimming, boating, you know, everything that we
0: love to do with lakes. Absolutely. So
1: if you're not also looking at what happens when these regimes shift, we're missing part of the story.
0: we're missing a big part of the story.
1: Exactly. So this was kind of actually another review article that seems to be where we're at today. Yeah. So what they found was that there hasn't been enough research here, basically. There's a few trends. Lower biodiversity once you've had eutrophication, Um, potentially lower nutrient retention when you have phytoplankton dominance, that's, you know, that eutrophication. Sure. Um... And that there's some discussion in the literature of the export of these nutrients, you know, all this fertilizer runoff, et cetera, from lake systems. You know, if there's a, like, a stream exiting the lake <laughs> downstream into other water bodies, there's sort of that kind of cascade effect, a little bit of look into that. And there's a little bit of work, basically, that says the clear water systems of higher drinking water quality and swimming water quality. Mm. We can, we could have more or less guessed that. You don't really yeah. want to swim in an algae-filled pond man i
0: don't know know. you don't want to come out covered in green slime that's how you want to cool
1: off in these nebraska summers
0: (laughs) i see a thick algae pond and like mm, (laughs) jump in that puppy
1: yeah but what they did say (laughs) and this goes back to everything we love to talk about as ecologists which is climate change is that there's very little research that's been done on the consequences of these regime 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 shifts excuse me for landscape carbon cycling Mm. So, what sequesters more carbon? Clear water state or an algae dominated state? Um,
0: It's an interesting question. It's an
1: interesting question. I mean, what if we're gaining benefits from highly eutrophicated lakes through carbon sequestration? You know, this sort of thing. Um, They do note, however, that most lakes are net carbon dioxide sources to the atmosphere. So in general, clear water one actually provides CO2 emissions. So that's kind of, that's just a brief note that I wanted to bring in, and it's, you know, not as perhaps fundamental as your paper doesn't go into as much, but it's just sort of a note that alternative stable states and the shifts between them have implications that may or may not be, you know, maybe positive, maybe negative. So right. each state is going to have ecosystem services that it provides and a shift to another might decrease that provision of services or mm-hmm. it might increase those same ones or it might increase or decrease completely different ones. Sure. You know what I mean? So people worry a lot in alternative states about eutrophication of lakes, desertification, places where deserts are encroaching where there haven't been deserts before, right. um, you know, overgrazing, all of these things. If these are happening, we need to know the implications of them. We need to know how good, bad, severe, etc. they are so that again, we know how to do our management.
0: Right. Well, and I think you're absolutely right that thus far, not a lot of research has been done on ecosystem services, which inherently includes a social aspect. Oh, too. absolutely. And instead of simply quantifying some of the stuff as well, where does an alternative stable state sit yeah. in position to another alternative stable state, or, you know, Where's the tipping point and a lot of these quantifiable technical aspects? Sure. Looking at if I'm you know just somebody off the street, you know, and I hear about alternative stable states, I'm going to care much more about that social aspect, right? The, yeah. Talking you know, about the swimming swim and the fishing yeah. and all of that stuff. So knowing that there are good alternative stable states mm-hmm. and bad alternative stable states, yeah. I think, is really important to do research on. And that. The good ones will have bad attributes, and the bad right. ones will so have I've good been. attributes. That's something Absolutely. we want
1: to make sure we keep clear with this, is that...
0: Good or bad in the sense of... human
1: perspective as
0: well. Well, in a human perspective, and then also that some things might have good and bad mixed in, like mm-hmm. it might be good as a carbon sink, but bad for fishing yep. or something. So yep. depending on what you want to use that area for, yeah, might be good or bad.
1: And then we get into all kinds of stuff that you, know, you study a little bit, law and policy, which is... Maybe how do you do economic evaluation on very nebulous concepts like social ecosystem services, and then translate that into, we should have policy to protect these spaces and keep them in this alternative stable state. And then that's maybe when you need to know where that tipping point is, because you need to know what you need to do to keep it in the cup that you want that ball to be in.
0: Right. But still, a lot there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a nice illustration of from the old paper to the new paper, that one's basically trying to prove, and so many of the papers in this field are trying to pr- prove that alternative stable states exist. Right. Especially back in 1977, but I still see those papers today, and I think we it they exist. You you got clear lakes, yeah, you drift lakes. That you know we're not. I feel like that argument's exhausted. Maybe now we're still looking at the math, like that 1977 paper, but right. But this illustrates now that also, okay, if this is a true fact, what do we do with that for our own benefit and for you know global benefit?
0: Absolutely. Forty years later, we move the question on a bit.
1: Hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. This, yeah. We'll see.
0: Um,
1: awesome. So Connor, awesome. yes, where did you see alternative stable states in
0: the news this week? What a great question. Well, I saw it coming out of South Carolina. Oh, okay. And I'm going to preface this by saying I cheated a little bit. That's fine. And we're all
1: we're all about cheating. <laughs>
0: And mine is only sort of about alternative stable states. Okay. It's more about resilience umbrella. All right. So let me describe this a little bit for you here. The governor of the state of South Carolina has recently proposed adding in, I quote, a chief resilience officer to the state government. Interesting. Yes. So the position, or the purpose of this position is to work on issues of extreme weather and sea level rise so that's where i'm plugging in my alternative stable state i see this alternate state of a flooded south carolina of
1: an underwater south carolina yes that's (laughs) an extremely
0: alternative state
1: and yet one that when you look at all those maps that you know new york times everyone has made that's like what's your city gonna look like in 40 years and like all of Uh, miami and everything's underwater yeah exactly so not an unrealistic one
0: (laughs) um so their their position at least in theory, will be to work on these issues and how South Carolina can cope. And so according to the article I read, which is from the Post and Courier from, uh, let me see here, February 16th, 2020. Um, and that's a local newspaper, by the way. So there's a few other states that already have a similar kind of position, which I did not know anything about. Um, so Florida and North Carolina both have a chief resilience officer at the state level.
1: Coastal those coastal states are coastal being states. forced to adopt resilience as a exactly framework. makes sense, right? It makes I a mean, lot of sense.
0: If Florida is going to be underwater, you probably want to yeah. start thinking about hmm, how can we cope with this. Yeah,
1: and University of Florida has produced some good resilience scholars, so maybe that's
0: very true. Maybe
1: that's uh, encouraging this behavior. Yeah,
0: very true. Uh, furthermore, the city of Charleston also has a chief resilience officer at the city level. Um, so this particular one would be the state level, right? And okay. so there's some there's some discussion about technical aspects of it, like how the legislature would go about approving it and stuff like that. That this article goes into. But I just thought that the the concept of a chief resilience officer was pretty interesting. And fun fact: apparently, the Florida Chief Resilience Officer, is a former hostage negotiator <laughs> for the U.S. State Department. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty impressive.
1: <laughs> what, a, what a career, man.
0: Uh, yeah, negotiated hostages. Hey, you want to be the resilience officer?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, why not? So That's very cool.
0: Um, and then this kind of gets into more of a scientist and science communication aspect of it. But uh, the article had a little interesting bit about the relationship between... A resilience officer and the scientific community. So per the article, while a resilience officer would likely be dealing frequently with the scientific community, it might not be necessary that they themselves are a scientist. Science has to inform whatever the state does through the resilience officer. Whether or not that person is a scientist depends on who the person is. Yep. And then I thought that the North Carolina resilience officer had a great quote. Uh, she described her role as, you know. She had to draw on communication and leadership skills as often as scientific fact, even though she has an academic background in physics, meteorology, and geography.
1: Fantastic. That so seems awesome. There's your
0: science communication plug for the day.
1: Love it. And also, there you go, where, you know, learn a little bit about resilience, have some frameworks in your mind, you know, know what's, you know, you don't need to be a scientist for That's this right. stuff to make sense. That's right. And you'll have to be a scientist to apply it.
0: No, for sure.
1: There you go. I love it.
0: Julie, you were quite excited about this one. I was a
1: bit excited, I texted Connor. I was like, I got a great article, <laughs> and I just said drugs and hippos, and that's all I've told him. Very intriguing. Very intriguing. So two articles: one that's background on drugs and hippos, <laughs> two that actually mentions my theme for the day. Oh boy, eutrophication. Yes, yes. So w- you heard of Pablo Escobar? Yes, Colombian uh, drug lord, if you will. Right. So he had a 74-acre compound castle kind of thing. His, okay. his paradise in central Columbia. And one thing that, you know, th- this article uh, sort of... I love this article from Los Angeles Times. If you want to know about this, go read the Los Angeles Times Chasing Columbia's Cocaine Hippos. <laughs> the language in it is just the funniest article I've read. But so it says he had man-made lakes, life-size dinosaur statues, a fleet of collectible cars and a zoo filled with elephants, rhinos, giraffes, and hippos.
0: Okay. Yeah. Enter the hippo.
1: Enter the hippo. They are described as nature's prima donnas, (laughs) requiring careful handling. Um, And when the Colombian National Police killed Escobar in 1993, zoos and private collectors came and took all his giraffes and all his elephants and all his, you know, tropical birds and all this, but they all left the hippos because they are too unwieldy, too dangerous to move. And there's this. The this quote makes me laugh. So two scientists, a postdoc and a grad stu- or a grad student and a professor, or something like this, have gone down to Columbia to study the hippos and the effects that they're having, because this is the only population of hippos outside of Africa, which is wow. obviously where they're from. Okay. And uh,
0: is this like a sustainable population? Yes. Wow. So he,
1: I believe, had four is what he brought there. There are now 65. Whoa. No, sorry. There were 65 when they were studied in 2017. And he, the professor who is studying this estimates that there are now between 80 and 100. Yikes. In Colombia. So there's a sustained population of hippos, which are much larger than any other. I think they said the other largest animal around there right now is like a tapir. So, it, um, okay. so like nothing of the size of a hippo. Right. And there hasn't been since... I think they, you know, said 30 back... million they,
0: years ago? Yeah. Something along...
1: It was like there used to be giant sloths or something like that. And it's like that was the last time that there was something of some megafauna of this particular size. Okay. And so the scientist gives... Uh, it's a... I think it's a UC San Diego postdoc student um, and a professor from a university in Columbia. And he says, you know how people say about wild animals? If you don't bother them, they won't bother you. And they're more afraid of you than you are of them. Right. Neither is true of hippos. Hippos are mean. Mean. When I was an undergrad, I studied in South Africa for a semester and there were hippos there. And that was the thing that we were like, dude, if if you see one, you're dead. They are the most dangerous animal in the continent of Africa. They are mean and they are insane. And... Uh, this article is just so funny because it goes into how hippos have been adopted as, like, a cute and cuddly symbol in, like, you know, certain parts of the world where it says, I love this article, plush hippo toys are found in the cribs of modern-day infants while 4,000-year-old ceramic hippo figurines from Egyptian tombs are displayed in Louvre. (laughs) There are songs, I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas, which I've never heard before, children's books, and cartoons. You've heard of that song? Yeah. I've never heard that in my entire life. Um... And just goes on everything about hippos Amazing
0: That's hilarious
1: Okay, and then this article sort of goes into A little bit of what I want to talk about in the other article But it says Nocturnal by nature, the Colombian hippos eat large quantities of grass Grazing all night and every night They only eat on land They come into the water and crap all day
0: (laughs) Whoa so
1: that's my pivot point for this other article that's in Smithsonian Magazine under their smart news section. Okay. It's, it's titled, Pablo Escobar's pooping hippos are polluting Colombia's lakes. Oh, I think you can see where we're going. Basically, hippos are causing the regime shift of clear Colombian lakes into a eutroph state purely from the amount that they're pooping. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I found this and I was like...
0: Nobody is, anticipated I was like, this is the
1: greatest current event article I could have possibly found for this podcast and nothing will ever surpass it. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: Let's just quit this podcast Quit right this podcast right start. now. I have peaked. <laughs> they have hippos at the Omaha Zoo. They seem fairly cuddly. Hippos
1: terrify me. I've been, I was, I lived in very close proximity for them for a bit and I was very much warned against, um, ever coming face to face with one and they're fast they can run 25 miles per hour on land wow that's
0: way faster than i would have expected yeah
1: they are they are not to mess around with (laughs) and they're real mean so it says in their native african habitat hippos prolific bathroom behavior can be beneficial transporting nutrients like silicon from land into water but in Colombia, where the animals are now invasive the environment is wetter and water levels less seasonably variable so you don't have such like transient pools Mm. this sort of thing Basically, there was a two-year study that this guy from a university in Columbia, his last name was Shuren. They published in the journal Ecology, okay. and so they sampled lakes from four, they sampled water from 14 lakes and found that you know they looked at water quality, oxygen, stabilized isotope signatures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what they found was that cyanobacteria, also known as blue-green algae, right. you know what we yeah. talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, is more prevalent in hippo-filled lakes, like because nutrients and mass quantities of hippo poop fertilize bacteria. oh god and he says this is where it comes in he says sharon says this can be disconcerting because it leads to problems like eutrophication or excess algae production that can lead to harmful algal blooms similar to red tides which you might have read about in the news you know down in the sort of georgia florida coast alabama mississippi coast kind of area so there you have it hippos this is kind of like your mosquito thing you just put one (laughs) two three four Mosquitoes, one, two, three, four hippos, and all of a sudden you've got a whole new state,
0: different, different regime,
1: different regime, very different animal.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: Yeah, so that's what I found, and I thought that was kind of amazing. And this is, you know, this just came out in the past ten days. Both these articles. I don't know. <laughs> I think that article by Shuren must have just been. Let me give the title, the names of the scientists that worked on this paper, which I believe is in ecology. Uh, it is a guy by the name of Shuren from UC San Diego. And a postdoctoral student, also from the UC San Diego, whose name is Natalie T. Jones. Mm. So, you can give them credit for this amazing work that (laughs) I
0: love very much. Today I learned.
1: Today I learned.
0: Hippos cause red tide.
1: (laughs) Hippos are wreaking havoc in Colombia. And yeah, and some of these articles were like, yeah, the people that live around there are just like, yeah, there's hippos now. They haven't run into (laughs) any problems with them yet. They're just like, oh yeah, they're over there and we we don't go in the water.
0: (laughs) So, fair enough. Now I'm waiting for the giant anacondas to show up and start oh, swallowing yeah. the hippos.
1: Yeah, well, isn't that... That's a problem in Florida now, right? That people kept...
0: Well, the Burmese pythons.
1: Burmese pythons, yeah. that's what it is. They kept them as pets, and now they're an invasive, like, endemic species in Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't I
0: happen. was thinking of the uh, B-movie anaconda. Ah, I see, I see, I see, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Taking a trip through Amazon, wind up fighting a giant snake. Yeah. And a hippo. And a hippo. There you go. That yeah. sounds like a sci-fi B-movie. Yeah, it does. Anaconda versus hippo. Yeah,
1: like someone like had no local knowledge of, of what <laughs> animals are actually in the Amazon and, or in, you know, Colombia, the sort of region. Then you're like, nope, there are actually hippos now. <laughs> we did that. Yeah, so that's my in the news. Excellent. So, uh, what's on the agenda for our next episode, Connor? What do our listeners have to look forward
0: to? Well, Julie, we have a special treat. Oh. For them. Yes, we have an interview oh. with Dr. Elena Bennett. Of McGill in at McGill University, in Canada. Up in Canada, she was here at the University of Nebraska to give a lecture. Mm-hmm. So we took the opportunity to sit down with her and chit chat about the stuff she's doing, how it relates to resilience, some of her thoughts yeah. on resilience theory.
1: If you enjoyed our ecosystem service talk, she is big in the world of ecosystem services. Mm-hmm. So come hear her.
0: She is she is a resilience that. theory expert. Oh, absolutely. Very well-versed.
1: Yeah, so, so, yeah, that to look forward to. And yeah. thank you guys for turning tuning in to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway?
0: WHRA. All right. Take see, care.
1: See you next week.